Good morning, everybody. Ooh, that is a little loud. Well, definitely do that. Definitely invite your friends to this awesome church. Who loves to be a part of Grace Marietta? Isn't this an awesome church? I, I really do have a, um, a fondness in my heart uh, for this church. Um, like Ben said, like Ryan said, like a few different people said, my name is Sam Breen. Um, I'm the college pastor at Grace, uh, Grace Midtown, uh, which is the kind of mother church of this campus. Four years ago, it kind of came out of a house church that we believed. Um, there we go. A little feedback. We're getting it. Um, so uh, about four years ago, we, f- we wanted to plant churches all around Atlanta, and-, and this was one of the churches that came out of it. And from one of the pastors at Grace Midtown, I just want to say, well done. We pray for you. We think about you. Uh, we think you're amazing. We see the growth. Uh, we see the depth that this congregation has had over the last four years, and we just think you're amazing. We think that all your wildest dreams and beyond are going to be fulfilled uh, for all the things that you can get to do here in Cobb County and beyond. So uh, good job. I love uh, the Hardmans. I love uh, the leadership here. Uh, I've known the Hardmans for about eight years now. We worked with each other at 3DM, um, and then we've got the pleasure to be around a big family together. So super, super excited to continue uh, the Make series today. Um, So the Make series, hopefully some of you have been around um, for the Make series, which is our summer series that we're sharing across uh, the campuses. And the Make series is, is, we're trying to hit on a value of discipleship. But instead of just educating you about discipleship, we want to give you some of the how behind discipleship. Uh, And so what we want to do that is by sharing stories of some of Jesus' disciples, unlock some of the truths in there, and then try and apply it to our own life. And so if you've been around, that's not going to be any different today. I'm going to hopefully do that. Um, we're going to look at the, the little-known story of Philip, um, Philip the Apostle, um, and we're going to kind of look at an interpretive lens in there and then hopefully apply it uh, to your own real life. Um, so if that sounds good, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. So Jesus, we trust you today. Um, We just know that you're doing amazing things all around the world. We just want to embrace the reality that we are um, one of many bodies of Christ that are gathering today uh, in places like this and different places, trusting that your name, your way is bigger and better than anything that we know. We love you, Lord. Amen. So yeah, I say little known story of Philip because reality is my assumption is that you probably don't know much about Philip the Apostle. Um, And that's not an accusation. I grew up in the church. Uh, My dad's a pastor from day one, been in the church. I I, like almost every Sunday of my entire life at a church. Um, Went to Bible school, undergrad, now doing a master's in theology. And if somebody asked me like, who is Philip the Disciple? I'd have said he is probably one of the 12. Not 100% sure about that. Um, and then maybe he's the guy in Acts 8 who baptizes an Ethiopian royal official, uh, but definitely not sure about that either. And then probably not knowing much else. And so my hope is that I'll be able to illuminate some of his story because actually half of that is true. 
Um, he wasn't the guy in Acts. There's actually, unfortunately, two Philips in the Bible. I know, names get multiplied just like around today. But so Philip in the Acts was actually, Acts 8 has Philip's from the seven. The Bible is not very creative with its grouping nouns. So you have the 12, Jesus' crew, then the seven, the early church, um, where they wanted to multiply the organization, the leadership of the early church. And so there was another guy called Philip in there. We're not talking about that guy. Uh, that is Philip the evangelist. He did amazing stuff in um, Samaria. Uh, another guy just with the same name. We're talking about Philip the apostle um, that Jesus called early on in his ministry uh, to be with him for three years and then was a part of that select 12-some that then in the early church uh, grew um, lots of different churches all around Asia Minor and into, uh, into Europe. Um, so incredible guy, but I don't think many of us have spent our time, there's probably not like a Philip scholar here. Uh, and so I just think uh, we can learn something from his, his life, uh, his story, and, and find this thread. Uh, and the thread that we're going to be looking at is sight. Um, so the, the, the title of this sermon is um, Philip, the Disciple Who Learned to See. Uh, and so we're going to look at four different little episodes in the Gospel of John uh, where there's four different main kind of stories about Philip. There's not much else in, in the other um, gospels, just in John, there's these big four statements. And I see when I was studying it, there's this like thread of vision and sight. And so that's the kind of interpretive lens that we're going to pull out today. Uh, what my hope is, instead of, we're probably going to cover about 60 verses, and instead of pulling out our Bibles and like flipping through and reading verse by verse, I'm just going to tell the story um, and kind of weave the interpretive lens and the application through, uh, because sometimes it's nice to have a little bit of a change up. Um, so I will add my own little blend of interpretation to the Bible, but it's all, it's not illegal. People have been, people have been telling the story of the Bible, not verse by verse, by just coloring it in uh, for many thousands of years. Uh, so hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun here. So the, um, let me tell you a little bit more about Philip, though. So um, he is one of the 12, um, but he's kind of the... He's on the starting team for sure. He's like starting on the team. I kind of think of Jesus kind of grabbing a sports team. He's a starter, but he's definitely not an all-star. Um, you know, like nobody really knows his name like you guys. Like we know the all-stars of Jesus' team, Peter, James, and John. They're the guys that like Jesus is making plays for, people are getting jerseys for, like not many people are like getting Philip on their back. Like it's just, it's, it's the case, we get that. Um, and I kind of relate to that. I grew up playing sports my whole life, really, and I was fortunate to like play on a lot of teams and start on a lot of teams, but literally never in my entire life has anybody drawn up a play and said like, all right, guys, let's huddle up. This is what we're gonna do. Pass the ball to Sam and he's gonna score. Um, it's mostly been on defense. Maybe it's just because I was tall, I could rebound. They're kind of like, how about we just pass off the ball and like make sure you don't do that kind of stuff. So I actually remember when I was 12, I was playing basketball um, in England, which is not a very basketball nation, but we play sometimes. Um, and I was driving the lane. I did this awesome finger roll, and it bounced right off the rim. The other team grabbed it and scored a basket on the other side. My coach grabbed me and was like, hey, Sam, I don't need you to do that. Um, 
preferably you just pass the ball to DJ. DJ's going to shoot and score, and then you get back on defense and rebound the ball. Sound good? Uh, so I think Phillip's a little bit like that. He's a starter for sure, but he's not an all-star. Um, and so I want to kind of illuminate his story a little bit and kind of figure out what what's we can learn from this great man of God, of course. If he's one of the 12, he has something to say, uh, but I just don't think many of us have spent our time um, listening to his story. So John 1 is where we first see his story kind of emerge, um, and, and this is what I call the call of Philip. Um, so at John 1, Jesus is just starting the scene, but the, probably the main character at the beginning of John is John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is the cousin of uh, Jesus, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan, being a little bit strange and weird, wearing different clothes than anybody knows, eating odd locusts, being out in the desert, kind of saying crazy things about the world. And people are like, are you the the one we've all been waiting for? Are you the guy who's going to redeem, restore, renew the nation of Israel? And he's saying, not me. I'm just the guy who points to the guy. I'm just... Uh, um, Kyle Borgannoni, one of the pastors up in Snellville, just says, I'm just the best man of the groom. I'm not the guy, I'm just the guy who's pointing at the guy. And so Jesus then comes onto the scene, and John the Baptist has his own disciples. That was kind of the way of rabbis in, in that uh, early century. Um, and two of, uh, two of John the Baptist's disciples was Philip, the guy we're going to be looking at, and Andrew, his best friend. Um, Andrew kind of appears at all four of the incidences, um, what we see throughout of uh, the, John, the, the Gospel of John. And so Philip and Andrew are a part of John's like, core crew, and John's been saying, like, Jesus is the guy, Jesus is the guy, Jesus is the guy. And then they see Jesus, and they're like, oh my gosh, that's the guy. Let's go follow him. So around about um, verse 35 in, uh, in the first chapter of John, what we see is like Philip and Andrew kind of creeping up behind Jesus. And they're kind of like fanboying on him. It's like, if we live around Atlanta, like if you ever see a celebrity, we're kind of like, we want to see them, but we like don't want them to approach us because then we're like, I don't know what to do, but we just want to watch you and kind of see what you do because you're pretty cool and I think I should be like you, right? Like I saw uh, Jason Bateman at um, West Egg and I was like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, he's eating eggs. Should I order eggs? Let's order eggs. So we're at West Egg, right? Let's order eggs. Um, so it's kind of like that. So they're, they're creeping up behind Jesus, and Jesus turns around and he says, what are you doing? Kind of like, duh, like you're creeping on me. What are you doing? Um, and uh, this is actually one of my favorite, like, kind of like pericopes, like little stories in the Bible, uh, it, which is where Jesus turns around, says, what are you doing? And they say, where are you going? And they don't really know what the weight of that question really is. Where are you going, Jesus? They have no idea. They think that they're just asking, what are you doing tonight? Where are you staying? In other gospels, he's even saying, where are you staying tonight? But what Jesus, he replies with a simple statement that is also just as weighty. And he says, come and see. Come and you will see. In that instant moment, there's an invitation into new sight. There's an invitation into a new way of seeing the world. Come and see. What I think about coming um, into the kingdom of God is that at that moment, there's an initial kind of change up where you start seeing the world upside down for the first time. 
At first, your world used to be dark, gray, cloudy, foggy, dull, scary, painful. But after we get the light of Christ coming into our life, everything starts to feel hopeful, joyful, even, in a, even interwoven with the pain. I would say that actually new vision of what the kingdom of God is about and how it can interact with our own life is the first essential step of being a disciple. Beyond sin, sin is, is a really important thing to manage and deal with and, and get over, but how can we know what sin is if we haven't changed a vision to know that sin is painful in our life? The first step is having new vision. Uh, accepting the invitation to new vision, new sight. I remember the first time that I became a Christian, uh, I'd kind of grown up in the church, but there was this moment, this one night, that I gave my life to Jesus, and that night, I just jumped on my bed and just sang praises for him. And that wasn't because, like, it was something that I, I knew I should do. It was just simply that I had this new vision, and there was this hope and joy that would burst inside of me, and I said, everything looks different now. I think, I think if you've been following Jesus a little ways, maybe you've forgotten that initial moment. But you know the people who have just become, just become a Christian. They've got that glint in their eyes that everything's different. Everything's changed. Everything's new because of this new invitation to sight. Come and see. Right after uh, Philip goes to um, actually what's known as his brother, um, in church history, which is Nathaniel, and says the exact same thing. Come and see Jesus. Come and see the guy that is, is maybe the guy, maybe the one who we've all been waiting for. Nathaniel's a bit of a naysayer. He ends up going there, and he thinks he's just gonna go and see Jesus, but ends up being seen for his most true self, where Jesus says, I saw you from far away, and Nathaniel was blown away by being seen for the first time. In this light of Jesus, we don't just get to see, but we're able to be seen. It's a beautiful journey of discipleship. The, the second moment of, of Philip's story um, is what I call the challenge of Philip. And this happens uh, a little later in, in uh, John 6. And a lot of you know the story that revolves around this, this kind of episode, but, but maybe you haven't seen it from Philip's eyes. Um, so John 6 is right at the point where Jesus' kind of ministry has really been bustling. He's done that whole water to wine thing in, in the wedding of Cana. He's been like healing people uh, all around. He's saying crazy things. And, and even the religious leaders are kind of pushing against him, creating some pressure in his life. And Jesus is saying, man, I, I think I need to get away. My time hasn't come yet to really be known as who I'm meant to be. So I'm going to get away. So uh, they, he escapes to a different side of the lake. He gets on a boat, which is not surprising because a lot of his disciples actually owned boats. So they just probably jumped in one of the disciples' boats, went to the other side of the lake to have a little bit of a retreat. Unfortunately, 5,000 men and their families start doing a little light jog all the way around the lake, thinking that, oh my gosh, Jesus is going over there for a private party. I'm gonna go and crash that thing. Um, so they, they hike around the lake, and Jesus has obviously got there first because he's in a boat, not running. Um, and so Jesus gets to the other side, sits up on the hill, and just almost say in this peace and waits. He just waits. 
And then as the crowd gets a little closer, uh, there's this moment uh, where he leans over to Philip and he asks a question. But just before that, what I think he says is, do you see them? Do you see them? Do you see the hunger that's in them? And the question that's recorded in the Gospels is that he looks over to Philip and says, how are we going to feed those really hungry people? They look pretty hungry. They just jogged around a freaking lake. And we're on the other side where there's not much stuff on here. What should we do? And Philip's in his old eyes. Don't we do this? We get new eyes, but then we revert back to old ways, old vision. He sees this problem, this challenge in his old eyes, his old ways, and says, Jesus, I have no idea how to fix this. This would take literally half a year's wages, six-month wages, just to give everyone a snack. And I don't think that's going to be helpful. I think that would actually make everyone just more mad. Just we give everyone a little snack, like a little granola bar just to keep them going. I don't think that's what they're looking for. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to, how are we going to solve this? Andrew, the bestie, leans over, is like, hey, I stole the little boy's lunch. Could that be helpful? Um, like, I've got some loaves, I've got some fishes, a little packed lunch. Are we good with that? And, and Jesus, you know the end of the story, takes that little boy's lunch, multiplies it for 5,000 people. But here's the thing. When I, when I think about that story, I, I kind of, I often revert to those old eyes. I think, obviously, Jesus is crazy, and he can, uh, he can multiply those little, that little packed lunch to feed 5,000 people. But in my heart of hearts, I think, what if there was 20,000 people there? What if there was 100,000 people there? Would have they left satisfied? Kind of just in my knowing the story, I know the end, but am I, have I actually learned the story of abundance? Have I actually learned the challenge and overcome the ways of the world, seeing it from my own eyes and actually seeing it from Jesus' eyes? If there was thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people there, every single one of them would have been left satisfied because they were interacting with the fountain of life. They were interacting with the one who had the storehouses of heavens right at his fingertips. Philip, in this moment, he's challenged to move away from his scarcity and move towards the kingdom of abundance. He hasn't quite got it yet. He's still learning. He's, his, what, I, what I like to say is that he learned to see in his call, but he's beginning to expand his sight to really figure out how much does that vision really encompass his life. Don't we often do this like when we have challenges in our life, we turn off our Christian brain and just turn on our logical brain? It's just, it's just the way that we do. I actually think it's the maybe man's first sin. That in the garden, we tried to fix our own problems by hiding, by covering up, by, by running away from God, thinking that that was going to solve, solve our issues and be the solution to the pain in our lives. And I think often when we have these challenge moments, and I would say that Jesus doesn't place those challenge moments in our lives, but he uh, partners with us in those challenge moments, they can be the inflection point for our faith. They can be the moment that we see the kingdom of God for really what it is, where there, it's actually irrational, it's illogical, it doesn't make sense with the, the, the man's eyes, 
but the kingdom is that good that it can heal people, that it can restore relationships, that it can get you the best job that you know that you're not qualified for. It can, it can uh, heal the cancer that you have in your bones, in your body. It can make a, a wound that was barren be restored and actually give life. These things in the eyes of man are illogical. And Philip sees this moment. He's, from this moment we learn from, we've gotta walk away from the man's eyes and expand our vision. Not just say yes to a new vision, but say yes to expanding what that vision can really encompass in our life. So that's, that's the second story of Philip. The big challenge, and I would say that's probably his big turning point. That's the moment that he really learns the lesson of abundance. The third story is is the compassion of Philip. He's learning what this new vision can really entail. And so Jesus' story kind of continues right after, if you, if you start feeding people for free on mountaintops, your popularity kind of goes up in the world. Um, and so his popularity continues, and it's kind of climaxing right at about um, chapter 12. So chapter 12 comes around, and there's all of this crazy stuff. He's raised people from the dead, also a good big plus in the world. Um, he's now hanging out with that raised to life guy, Lazarus, and having parties with him, and people are going crazy. People are thinking, for sure, this is the guy that we're looking for. This is the guy who's gonna redeem and restore. And there's this kind of pressure again, even increasing from the religious leaders that are like, we thought we had all of the the kind of the ropes and the tie downs on this nation, but everything seems to be unsettled and I don't like that, maybe we should kill this guy. Great response, right? Um, and so right after um, chapter 12, there's this like last moment, the last kind of pinnacle of climax that then descends towards the cross, which is right around with Philip. Philip uh, is actually a Greek name. And so scholars would think that maybe he's not a Greek guy, but he's a guy who does a lot of stuff with Greeks. Um, so Philip is actually the name of the kind of ruler in that, in that kind of area, Philip Tetrarch. And, and so he's kind of placed the name, he's taken on the name of the kind of the Greek leader. And so he probably speaks Greek, he probably understands the ways of the Greek world, but he's kind of in these two different worlds. Similar to myself, I kind of find myself in that way. If you haven't known, I'm kind of British and American. Uh, I, I didn't explain that part first, but when, when I first preached here, Tyler was like, that was hilarious. He preached as a British guy and then got off the stage and talked as American. Brilliant move to get everyone's attention, right? <laughs> uh, but I am British, uh, but I've lived in the um, States since I was 14. So I'm kind of in this third culture kid kind of right in between these two spaces, which I think Philip also finds himself. That he's, he's a Jew, but he's got this kind of Greek identity. And right at um, uh, chapter 12, what happens is all of the nation of Israel are kind of really excited about Jesus, and then all of the Greeks, what were kind of probably known as the God-fearing Greeks, the ones that would go up to Jerusalem to kind of offer their sacrifices in hopes that Yahweh would look favorably on them. But what they actually asked for, in, in chapter 12, 
some of the Greeks grab Philip. They probably know his name and they can kind of think, maybe he knows Greek. So they speak to him in Greek and they say the same thing, a really important question. Can we see him? Can we see him? And I think if Philip hadn't learned his second lesson, his response into the third lesson would have been no. How often do we just hold our own faith to ourselves? Because even though that we've learned new sight, I think that we, maybe the thing that we're most stingy with is our faith. We can actually be happy to give lots of money, happy to open up our homes, but when it actually comes to the faith that's inside of us, we're not so sure about how we can give that away. How do we live from an abundant eyes with our faith eyes, with our faith understanding, with our faith actions? And so Philip in this moment of faith, understanding what abundance says is, if I get these guys in front of Jesus, they're not, they're not gonna take Jesus away, but what's gonna happen is the same thing that happened to me is that their eyes are gonna be opened. And so what Philip obviously says, come and see. He actually grabs Andrew, his bestie, uh, and says, hey, there's all of these Greeks that want to see Jesus. Do you think that's a good thing, bad thing? I know Jesus is kind of like feeling the pressure of all this popularity. Doesn't feel like the greatest idea to increase the rest of the world. Um, but let's go ahead and do that. So they both go to Jesus, and at this moment, Jesus had been waiting for. This is the moment that, in his heart of hearts, Jesus is saying, this is the moment that will then tip me towards the cross. It's amazing that I've come for the nation of Israel, but when the world looks to see me as the Savior, that's the moment that I go to the cross. And so as soon as Philip says, there's these Greeks that want to see you, Jesus says, my time has come. I'm now gonna go to the cross. And the, the story of Jesus and Philip begins to descend towards that space. So for us, do we, do we live a place of compassion? And, and what faith in abundance equals is compassion. I think that we just gotta live with a compassionate heart, trusting that if we extend ourselves and we, we, we bring Jesus into the mix of all of our lives, all of our relationships, compassion will be the thing that is birthed. And so Philip had compassion on these Greeks and they came to Jesus and they were restored and they even got the new vision and we know the end of the story. But the final moment of Philip is so important for us. It's, it's maybe the, if we miss the final point, I think that as a disciple, we yes, we would get new vision we'd be able to overcome challenges and then we'd be able to embrace our life as faith. But I think we'd be missing the final step of discipleship. And the final step of um, Philip's discipleship with Jesus happens just a couple chapters later in, in 14. And again, you know this story, you know, the, you know the event, but maybe again we haven't seen it through Philip's eyes, which is the Last Supper. And so I call this event the clarity of Philip. And, and why I call it the clarity of Philip is that he's been expanding his vision this whole time. He's been expanding this, this way of seeing the world, but everything begins to click when Jesus offers 
this last invitation. So Jesus is up in the upper room with his uh, disciples and his kind of core crew. And he's, he's beginning to talk about, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm even going to die. All the disciples are like, are we talking metaphorically? I, you kind of do that, Jesus. Like you sometimes talk literally. You sometimes talk metaphorically. Just like blink once if it's metaphor, blink twice if it's literal. I don't want to look stupid, but I don't get you. Um, and so they're beginning to say, like, I'm going to see my father. And you've even begun to see him now in me. And, and Philip chimes up and he's like, I think this, the same kind of passion that he had way back when in, in chapter one was, oh my gosh, if there's an invitation to see more, I need it. I want it. And so he says to Jesus, Jesus, if there's anything that you could do, let us just see your father. Let us see the father. And what Jesus says in return is mind-blowing. He says, I'll do you one better. You'll see the father for sure. You've already begun to see him in me. I'm inseparable with him. Every moment that I move, every action that I take is actually in step with the Father. So when you see me, you see the Father. But I'll do you one better. As you begin to believe in me and you begin to do the things that I did in greater ways, you won't just see the Father. Other people will see the Father in you. That's the final step of discipleship. That our vision becomes so clear that we see the world through the Father's eyes and begin to step in his shoes. John 5.19 says, uh, where Jesus is talking about, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only see what I, I only say what I hear the Father saying. That kind of like alignment with Jesus and then the Father himself is the final step of discipleship. What, what I think happens with discipleship, and this has happened in my own lives, is that we, we cap out our discipleships of just mimicking the best people that we know. Hear me say this, like, I think that's a really great first step of discipleship. There's usually somebody that invites you into the kingdom, and then you think, oh, you're the person that I should just model my life after. And that's a great thing. Like Mike Pilavachi, the guy who kind of like, led me to understanding the, the church and the ways of the Holy Spirit when I was 18. I just modeled my life after him. I started doing the things that he did. I even said the kind of phrases that he said. I even kind of walked the way that he walked. Matt Reynolds now, somebody who's been so impactful in my discipleship, I start saying things that he says. I start being the kind of way that he is. But my end of my discipleship is not just to try and be the best kind of Matt Reynolds in Sam's Breen's body but to then say, thank you, Matt, for leading me to the Father. Stop mimicking the best models we have, and now just let's model the Father. Let's get away from mimicking earthly models and start modeling our heavenly Father. Because that's actually the final stage of discipleship, that as we begin to inseparably move with the Father in our lives, people will then say, oh my gosh, can I see him in you? And what you would say, come and see.
It's always an invitation to a greater vision, to a greater vision, to greater clarity, to greater relationship. But it ends with us looking like the Father. Henry Nouwen, actually, he has this book um, revolving around the prodigal son. Um, and the final chapter is to understanding the story of the prodigal son, which we see in Luke, um, is not that we look like the son, the best version of the son, but actually we begin to be like the father. Not to be one who just receives compassion, not just be the one who receives the welcoming home, but the one who begins to give the compassion, begins, begins to invite home, begins to function their lives with the understanding the vision of abundance of the kingdom of God and saying, yes, the kingdom does envelop my whole life. It's not narrowed. It's the widest thing about my whole life. And actually, I'm swimming with the Holy Spirit every moment. That's really what baptism baptism really means. And so my offering to you would be, where are we? What do you need today? Where does your sight need to be expanded? And, and it is a little bit of a virtuous cycle that if you've forgotten the initial invitation, maybe you just need to hear it again, come and see. And, and be awoken to that joy, to that passion again. But maybe you're facing a challenge and that you've been narrowing, you put your heads down. In Psalms, it says, there was a net above my, uh, at my feet, but instead of looking down, I looked up and then he released me. Are, are you in a challenge right now and your vision needs to look up instead of look down? Are, are, you, are you feeling the pressure and the opportunity to extend your faith to other people, not to live as an individual faith that so much of the American dream says that we should, but actually live a communal faith that extends to others. Is that where your vision is expanding right now? Or maybe you're, you're actually, and I would offer maybe it's only in our second half of life that we can truly embrace the call to be the father. But maybe you're there and saying, I don't need to model my way of the of the broken yet beautiful models that have been given me as earthly people, the disciples that have led me so far, but I need to lay them aside and now go straight to the source. Go to the one, the only, the Father in heaven, the heavenly, knowing that he's the one who can, I actually can model my life at and embrace the call that actually people would see the Father in you, not just you having to look for the Father in others. And so, in this moment that we're going to close, there's going to be some communion around. And I love communion. Uh, there's lots of different ways to kind of experience communion. Um, but the most basic way is just to say, Jesus, your way, your death, let it be my way and my life. And, and this is what Jesus is offering in all of this invitation into new sight and new vision. And so, Embrace this. There'll be prayer people if you want. Anybody who's on staff would love to pray for you if you're dealing with any of those challenges or just the need for bigger vision in your life. Um, I, I want to end our time um, reading from Ephesians, 5, uh, Ephesians 1, 15 uh, through 22. And I, and I read this because really Paul summarized my whole 
talk in these few verses. So that's pretty helpful. Um, but hear this as a benediction and also one of hope. So Paul says to the Ephesians church, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in our prayers. I keep asking that the God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, um, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him, the Father, better. I pray, listen to this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you know the hope that you've been called to, the riches of the glorious inheritance in his holy people, the inseparable great power for us who believe. That same power, that same power, the mighty strength that he exerted when he rose Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that could be evoked, not only in this age, but in the age to come. God has placed all things under his feet, anointed him the head of our church, which is body, the fullness in which he fills. Amen. Come and receive communion today.